Now, um, we are getting into, uh, this is our second to last week in our series, Road to Jerusalem, and been looking at the book of Luke. And there's a picture I was trying to show you guys that was part of the, it's called the Dome of the Rock, which is where the temple used to stand. And I told you that there was like a, an Islamic center there where the temple used to be. And I was trying to show you a picture about a month ago of it looks like the face of, of a devil or Satan, like in the tile of this place called the Dome of the Rock. And our tour guide showed it to us. And he was actually telling us like, be careful taking a picture because the, the people that are in charge of this mountaintop will get mad at us if we take a picture of it. And so we had to kind of sneak our photos uh, discreetly. And I tried to show you this photo about a month ago and the craziest thing happened when I imported the photo into my presentation. Somehow it got turned sideways and condensed and you couldn't even make out what it was. I was trying to show you this photo right here. And you can kind of see a mirror image of itself on top and the bottom. And the craziest thing about that is I have never had, I'm not superstitious, I have never had a photo change itself, so to speak, in the presentation when I saved it. I went home that afternoon, I was trying to figure out what happened. I saved it 10 different times, and it kept doing it over and over and over again. Like I couldn't actually see it. I was like, what is up? This, this like file is possessed, you know? And, uh, and then... I finally got to work this girl. I wanted to let you see that. That's what I was trying to show you about a month ago. It's just eerie to think that's on the tile of the marble on the Dome of the Rock where the Temple Mount used to be. We talked about how Jesus and forces of darkness are still in conflict, obviously, to this day. And you'll see that play out more and more in our story today. So for the Ask Anything series, one question that really stood out to me, it's on your sheet there, that one of you said, one of you said, I feel so unmotivated in my faith, and I feel numb. How do I keep from feeling numb in my faith? And I know it's easy for us to feel numb about certain stories in the Bible, especially the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, because we know it so well. We, 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 there are certain parts of the scriptures that we say, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times. I know the stories. And it's easy for us to feel just kind of nothing or feel numb about certain stories in the scriptures. And so we begin to take it for granted. So my prayer today is that you'll see this story with fresh eyes. That your heart will see it in a new way today. Not, nothing new, not new information, but that your heart will just be engaged in today's story in a fresh and powerful way. I want you to pay attention as we go through the text, the kind of people that are woven all throughout the crucifixion story, the kind of people that Jesus comes in contact with as he's about to be crucified. So look at Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 5, where it says, Then the whole company of them, so that's the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they all bring him before Pilate, who was a governor at that time, a Roman governor, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man, that's Jesus, misleading our nation, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Remember, what it, when they said, should we pay our taxes? What did, he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar, what, what to God, things that are God's. So that's a false accusation. He didn't say don't give tribute to Caesar. Saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. 
But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Now, this guy Pilate would not normally be in Jerusalem just hanging out. He's only there because it is a season of Passover. And Passover was a celebration of the Jews being set free from Egypt. So during this time, Jerusalem would swell 20 times its normal size. So it was normally like 80,000 people. It's over maybe a million people that are in Jerusalem at that time of the year. And because it's like their Independence Day from Egypt, national pride would be like at an all-time high. I know you can think of one day for us, Fourth of July, where it's kind of like that for us. Well, this was a whole week for them of celebration, celebrating their freedom from Egypt many, many years ago. So now they're living under Roman rule, Roman oppression. So you can see how the Roman authorities would get nervous about them celebrating their, their previous freedom at this uh, festival called Passover. So Pilate was kind of nervous. He would come into Jerusalem and make sure that they know that he's in charge, that really they have no authority and no power. Now, the Jewish leaders, they could only make rulings on religious issues. So there was this thing called the Sanhedrin. There was the Jewish religious court. And they could rule on things that were religious, like affiliated with their religion, but nothing else. When it came to, like, criminal court, that was all, Romans were in charge of that. So the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, could never, could never sentence anybody to death. The, only, Roman, only, only the Roman court could do that could uh, actually sentence someone to death for a crime. So they accuse, this crowd accuses Jesus of three things. They accuse him of leading a rebellion against Rome. They accuse him of saying that they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, which of course is false. And they also accuse him of claiming to be a king. Now the first two, of course, were false. But the third accusation that he claimed to be king was the one that Rome would really care most about. So Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, are you, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus seems to say, yes, I am, but your concept and my concept of what that means are worlds apart. So Pilate looks at this crowd in front of him, and he says, I find no guilt in this man, but the crowd, of course, will have none of that. Now, I want to show you, at the time of Jesus, this is what Israel looked like. I know it's kind of small print. You can't see a whole lot of that, but if you look at sort of the middle to, towards the bottom, you see Jerusalem there uh, between the Dead Sea on the right and then the Mediterranean Sea on the, on the left. And if you look all the way up in Samaria, it says Caesarea on the coast. That's called Caesarea by the sea, not to be confused with Caesarea Philippi, which is more inland uh, from the Mediterranean. But Caesarea by the sea was the normal place that Pilate would live and where he would have his seat of power located. And he would come all the way to Jerusalem during Passover to make sure he, that they all know that, hey, I'm in charge, Rome's in charge here, not you all. Here's a couple of pictures uh, for you to remember this. Um, the Sea of Galilee, of course, is up at the top, towards the top. 80% of the Gospels, when they're written, happened around the Sea of Galilee towards the north. But then as Jesus makes his journey towards Jerusalem, toward the south, we've been tracking that journey throughout the book of Luke. Here's a few pictures of Caesarea by the sea today. This is a temple, I think ruins of a temple there along the coast. And it's just amazing to see this ancient city that's still standing there. And it's a, it's a, it's a big tourist attraction. Uh, there's a racetrack there. 
just showing you kind of how Roman culture had invaded everything. They would have these games, and that's still there today. We walked right through that racetrack to the next uh, site at that location. There's also a big amphitheater there, I think, that was built by one of the Herods, one of the many Herods that overlooks the, the Mediterranean. And um, just some really significant things happened right there in that amphitheater, and it's, of course, still there today as a big tourist attraction. They still hold concerts and events in that environment uh, there in that city. But what's interesting about Caesarea by the Sea, that location, and Pilate, is that in 1961, they found this stone in Caesarea. And you can't read the writing there, but the translation is it has Pilate's name on the stone. And it's one of only, I think, four examples of Pilate's being referred to in history apart from the scriptures. I think it's the only archaeological evidence that we have that he was a real person. Everything else, I think, is, is historians writing down that he was a real person. And so it's interesting when you see the Bible line up with archaeology, how it gets confirmed over and over and over again. This was discovered in 1961 in the city that I just showed you, where Pilate would have been um, in his seat of power in that part of the world. It refers to Pilate dedicating this temple to Emperor Tiberius. So it's just really encouraging to see how you can look at the scriptures and be encouraged to know that these things get confirmed over and over through some of these finds. If you look back at the text at the end of verse 5, where Jesus is accused, he's accused of stirring up a rebellion all the way up to Galilee, where he spent most of his ministry. So once Pilate hears them mention Galilee, he says, ah, Galilee, that's not my jurisdiction. That's Herod's jurisdiction. You see, Pilate didn't really want to deal with this Jesus. He was really hoping to put him off on somebody else. And so that's what he does in verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him. He questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated, them, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So Pilate is this person who is a governor, but he wants nothing but peace, and he'll do anything to get that. So he's got these two groups of people. He's got the Jewish religious court. He's got this crowd who wants to see Jesus crucified, and he gladly sends him over to this man named Herod, who's also in town for Passover. And I think Pilate is like this picture of politicians today. He knows what's right. He knows the right thing to do, but he fears the crowds. And he's fearful of what they're going to do to him or think about him. He's more concerned with reputation than character, and we see that in the character of Pilate. Now, Herod at first acts happy. It says he's glad to see Jesus, but he's not, he's not glad in the way that, he, that he's seeking truth. 
Because he, he just wants to see a sign. He wants, he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about some miracles and some teachings. And he's hoping that maybe that Jesus will show him some kind of a sign or a miracle um, when he meets him. Now, this is not the same Herod as the one that tried to kill the baby Jesus. There's actually several Herods in the New Testament. Um, the one that tried to kill Jesus was Herod the Great many years before. And he was a, a horrific ruler. And uh, this is a guy named Herod Antipas. And he was the same one that had John the Baptist killed. Now, he would still, of course, like to see Jesus killed, but he can't find a good reason to do it, so he sends him back over to Pilate. Um, so what happens in verses 13 to 16, a quick summary, is that Pilate calls these Jewish leaders together, and he says he's found nothing worthy of death in Jesus, and neither, neither of course, is Herod. And so Pilate plans to just punish Jesus and then release him. Skip down to verse 18, where it says, but they, meaning the crowd, all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, why does the crowd want this man, Barabbas, released? Well, Every year at Passover, Pilate would release one prisoner, kind of like a pardon today. And Pilate really wants to release Jesus. He thinks, if there's anybody who deserves release, it's going to be Jesus. And of course, the crowd's going to want, you know, someone who's innocent, truly innocent to be released. And instead, the crowd doesn't receive Jesus with this invitation from Pilate. Instead, they want Barabbas. They want this awful criminal released. He's the guy that committed murder during a riot against Rome. So think about this. He was actually trying to overthrow the Roman government. If you remember, what did they accuse Jesus of trying to do? They said he claims to be king. He's trying to undermine the Roman government. So this guy, Barabbas, really did the crime that they're accusing Jesus of doing. So the real pronunciation of this man, Barabbas, it's, it's actually two words, like bar and abbas. Bar means son of. Abbas means father. So his name means son of the father. This is really important. Because this crowd, they're rejecting Jesus, who is, the, of course, the true son of the father, and exchanging him for this other one where his name means son of the father, and they're saying, hey, give us that one. Give us the murderer. Give us the, the insurrectionist. And I think this Barabbas story is really important because imagine, I want you to just kind of think about this story. Imagine what, what, what it would be like to be Barabbas. You're sitting in this Roman jail awaiting your execution by crucifixion, which was the most gruesome way to die back then. 
and you start to hear this crowd outside, and they're shouting the phrase, crucify him, crucify him, and it's just getting louder and louder and louder, and you think they're shouting about you. And so your pulse begins to quicken, and you recognize, you begin to recognize that these are the final moments of your life. And then you begin to hear the footsteps of a guard who's walking in your direction. But then when he arrives to your prison cell, instead of giving you a crossbeam to carry to your execution, instead he unlocks your shackles and he says, you're free to go. And you stand there in, in stunned silence. Just imagine what you would feel in that moment. I got a small taste of that uh, several years ago. There was a student that was a part of this ministry who um, got into some legal trouble. I don't want to go, I don't wanna go into all the details of what happened and what he had actually done, but there was a trial, and um, if he was found guilty, he would go to prison for many, many years. And it was a tough place for me to be in because I was trying just to show support for his family as he walked through this really horrible situation. And I wasn't really even sure on the details of what took place. I was trying to walk this line of being there for support, but also not endorsing or condoning what had taken place. And I was asked by the family to be a character witness or to go and just, if it went to sentencing, be a part of that process possibly. So I I saw part of the trial. And I did hear, they called me and said, hey, they're about to read the verdict. Can you come to the courthouse? And so I go to the Bell County Justice Center and I got there a little bit late, and it was in the evening. And they'd already read the verdict, and it was not guilty. And this student of mine was already downstairs with his family, and he comes, like, bursting through the front door of the Justice Center, and just, he's got tears, like, streaming down his face, and he, like, throws his arms around me, and he's just like, he's like, Dave, they said not guilty. He's like, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And so we had this, like, little, you know, mini celebration, so to speak, And then as I'm driving home, I just felt this conviction. I just thought, you know, that's a perfect example of of what God has done for us. He's declared us not guilty. But how infrequently do I have joy like that? So if if someone can be that joyful when a human court finds them not guilty and declares them not guilty, why do I struggle to find joy when in the divine court I'm considered guilty? not guilty. Why don't I find joy? I feel kind of numb about that sometimes. Why don't I find joy in that? And I was convicted about that. I said earlier that one of you asked, you know, how do I get excited about my faith? I just feel so numb. You know, when you grow up in a Christian environment, at times we take for granted that we've been set free. And I want you to think about that as it relates to this man Barabbas, you know, put yourself in those shackles, condemned to die, and then this guard just shows up and, and walks you out of prison and sets you free. And as you walk outside, you see this crowd and they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and you begin to peer into that crowd and you see a man with a crossbeam on his shoulders and he's stumbling under the weight of it. And you go over to someone and you ask, you know, what, what has this man done? What's his crime? And nobody can give you a straight answer. 
But then it becomes clear that this man, Jesus, is really innocent. And you realize that he is the, he's the innocent one who's going to a criminal's death, and that you're, you're the guilty one who's going free. We have to understand that we are like Barabbas. Before we come to know Christ, we sit in this spiritual prison of our own sin, condemned to die eternally, but when we surrender our life to Jesus, he sets us free. And it's a simple truth, but so often we take it for granted and don't realize just the weight and the significance and impact that that should have in our lives. We have to see ourselves as Barabbas, but we also need to see ourselves in the crowd. Because these people, this crowd, they preferred to have a murderer among them rather than the Son of God among them. I think it reminds us of our own rebellion against God and how often we reject him. Mike McKinley says it like this. Sinful human beings simply cannot be neutral toward a holy God. We are rebels against him, and he is a threat to our way of life. He stands between us and our passionate commitment to live our lives in exactly the way we wish. And so when God came in human flesh, the only options open to humanity were to worship him as Lord or to kill him as an enemy. You see, there is, there is no in-between with Jesus. We can worship him or we can reject him. There is no in-between with Jesus. And I know that you and I, we like to think the best of ourselves. We think that if, well, if I was in that crowd, I'd be different. I wouldn't be one of those people. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. We think that we wouldn't be, be the ones, you know, calling for his crucifixion. I think the hatred of this crowd shows us how guilty that you and I can be, but it also shows, I think, the love of God. Because the people who want Jesus killed are the same ones that he's dying for. The people who are shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, I just imagine Jesus like looking at each person's face. And it's like he's looking at each person with this love and compassion as they shout out all this vitriol and hate and death towards him. That he looks at each person and he's, it's like he loves each person with compassion and those are the people that he's going to the cross for. Look down at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So Roman criminals back then, when they were going to be crucified, they were forced to carry this wooden crossbeam that would weigh upwards of 100 pounds. This was meant to intimidate. So as that person walked the streets of Jerusalem towards the place where they would crucify people, it was a, like they were carrying a sign of guilt. Like, I'm guilty. I'm going to my death with this crossbeam. This is what happens whenever you oppose Rome. This will be your fate if you were to cross Rome in some way. So Jesus begins to carry this crossbeam, but of course, from the beatings, his body is weak, so they force 
this random person named Simon of Cyrene to carry, to carry the crossbeam. And this is also really important because this man Simon is coming all the way from North Africa, most likely to celebrate Passover, which is now 800 miles away. He's on this long journey, and he's coming to celebrate Passover there in Jerusalem. And if you know what Passover represents, there was the Passover lamb. Of course, it was sacrificed during that time of the, that season. And, and they, they knew that they needed the blood of this animal to atone for their sins. And so now this guy is coming in to celebrate that with his Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's like he just gets whisked up into this crazy story of history, the crucifixion story of Jesus. He's this unsuspecting man, and they just bring him into the story. And now he's the one who's carrying the cross piece for Jesus, who is going to be the final Passover sacrifice. It's believed that this man Simon later became a follower of Christ. His sons are mentioned as part of the early church and other New Testament books. So Simon of Cyrene, he carries the cross of Jesus. But remember back in Jesus' earlier ministry in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Simon isn't the only one asked to take up a cross. We are as well. We are called to take up our cross. We are called to suffer with Jesus. Look down at verse 32. It says, two others were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So Luke has this way of emphasizing how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So first, he is placed between these two criminals, and this fulfilled Isaiah 53, 12, where it said, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again, we can see ourselves all over the crucifixion story. So Jesus, the innocent one, is placed with criminals. Why? Because he's dying for criminals. That's cosmic criminals like you and me. And Isaiah 53 reminds us that he was numbered with transgressors because he was going to make intercession for the transgressors, like those that have transgressed the laws of God. I want to show you um, this place called the skull, or called, some call it Golgotha. And this is an older picture. There we go. There's the, uh, the first picture I wanted to show you. You can kind of see like this little formation in the rock. They called this the, um, the place of the skull back in that time. And this is an older picture before erosion took place. You can kind of see a little bit like a face that looks like a skull there in the rock um, with the two eyes. Those are like uh, possibly caves. And this was known as the place of the skull. It was right outside the city of Jerusalem, right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it's the place that many think that he was maybe crucified up on top of that hill. And then this is a picture of the same thing today. And it's weird that there's like a bus station right in front of it today. Um, but it's eroded some, but you can still kind of see the formation there. It's a place that many think that Jesus would have been crucified because it was just outside the city. And what's really crazy is the next picture I'll show you, which is the garden tomb. 
there is a, I forget what year this was discovered, but it had to be unearthed. Um, as part of the same complex, when you walk into the garden tomb complex, this is where many think that could have been the tomb that Jesus was, was laid in when he was uh, dead for three days. And it is so close to that place I just showed you. Um, it's amazing. You can literally walk within two minutes from that location to the place where they think that many, many think that he was put to death. And it's, it's, it's all part of the same complex. And so when you look at this today, you literally go outside the city and you go, well, this is a place that looks like it could be a skull formation where maybe he was put to death. And also a place that was like a garden tomb that very easily could have been the place where he was uh, placed for three days. And this is the inside area of that tomb. There's one other location in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that some think that that could have been the place where he was crucified and, and then um, placed in a tomb around that area in Jerusalem. That's also a possibility as well. But skip down to verse 34, where it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Again, it's amazing that while he's dying, he prays for the ones that are killing him. As he's, as he's spending his last moments there on earth, he, he prays for the people who are actually putting him to death. This fulfilled other prophecies. The, the soldiers you know, cast lots for his garments. That's prophesied over in Psalm chapter 22. And then the crowd and the rulers, they gather around, they try to, and they're mocking him at this point. And these soldiers... They begin to offer him sour wine, and all of that's prophesied in Psalm 22 as well. Now, again, this sour wine is really significant because this is what, what people would take when they're experiencing pain. They would take it to numb the pain. But Jesus, of course, refuses their offer. So Jesus could have numbed his senses, but he chooses to feel every ounce of that pain on our behalf. Look at verse 38, where it says, There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. We can't miss the significance of this. Because you would think that when you're dying, you'd be in your most humble state of mind, but not this criminal on the cross next to him. This man is so prideful that he spends his last few moments on earth mocking Jesus from the cross. The other one, of course, has the opposite reaction because he knows who Jesus is, and he rebukes the other criminal. He says, we're getting what we deserve, but this man, Jesus, he's innocent. And I love the simplicity of this man's faith. And it shows that, that no one is too far gone. Imagine the life this man lived to be justly killed in this way, put on a cross. 
how bad your life must have been if that's the end of your life. But here he is, receiving the grace and the mercy of Jesus in his last moments. And it shows that no one is too far gone. These two men on the outside look the same, but both, both are criminals condemned, condemned to die, but they are very different on the inside. One man hurls insults while the other puts his faith and trust in Jesus. The first man wants Jesus only for what Jesus can do for him, which is get me down off this cross. That's all he wants. But the second man just wants to be in the presence of Jesus. And that's what Jesus grants this man. Look at verse 44 where it says, And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The sixth hour would be noon because the Jewish day began at 6 a.m. Now, this wasn't like just darkness, like clouds in the sky, but this was a sudden, supernatural, pitch black darkness. This should be the brightest part of the day, so why does it go dark? Well, if you remember, we see, we see darkness all throughout Scripture as a picture of evil, also indicating God's judgment. If you remember the ninth plague in Egypt, what was it? It was God bringing this thick darkness over the land of Egypt at that time. And Exodus chapter 10 says that it was a darkness. It was so dark that it could be felt. That means you couldn't even, like, see your hand in front of your face. This is not like nighttime. This is like you can't see anything kind of darkness. And they couldn't leave home. They couldn't go anywhere. So darkness comes before the 10th plague, which was, of course, the death of the firstborn of those who did not place blood on the doorpost of their homes. And now darkness comes before the death of Jesus. You see, nature itself is in mourning for what's about to happen. This is the most evil act in human history, but it's also God's judgment upon sin, and all of that is falling upon Jesus. And at this moment, there is this curtain in the temple that is torn in two. And it was what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And only once per year could the high priest enter that space on the Day of Atonement and commune with God. But now this curtain is, is torn for, for us all to have access to God through Jesus. You see, the cross shows us how serious God takes sin, but the torn veil shows how serious he is about grace. The torn veil is like this invitation for us to enter in into a relationship with him. And so the question for us is, have, have we responded to that invitation? His final words are a quote from Psalm 31.5 where he says, where the psalm says, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then Jesus takes his last breath. He quotes scripture back to his father, and he takes his last breath, and Throughout this story in Luke 23, what do we see? We see that Pilate recognizes that Jesus is innocent. We see that Herod recognizes his innocence. The criminal next to him on the cross 
sees that he's innocent. And now this Roman centurion sees the innocence of Jesus. This man, this Roman centurion, would, would be like in command of all of the other guards there on that day. And he has probably seen many people go to their death, but he's never seen a death like this. You see, he couldn't, he couldn't help but see who Jesus is. He sees Jesus cry out, taking his last breath. And this, this Roman centurion is pierced by that. The reality of who Jesus is shoots right through all that armor and right through his toughness as a soldier. And what I love about the story here at the end is that some of the most unlikely people come to know Jesus. The people that you would least expect are the ones that recognize his innocence, and some even come to faith and trust him and receive his grace and mercy. I want to remind you earlier in the story, when you go back to that scene when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on that donkey, and the crowd is praising Jesus, and the Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And how does Jesus respond to that? He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the rocks would cry out. So all these unlikely people in the story, these are the rocks. And they're crying out and they're confessing that Jesus Christ is God. He is the Messiah who has come to give us relationship to the Father. So what will your confession be? What is your confession about him? You can also pray what Jesus prayed. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and you can surrender yourself to him and start a relationship with him. I'll pray for us. God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the stories all throughout the Gospel of Luke and how they just affirm over and over and over again your innocence and how your innocence gets applied to us at salvation that your righteousness gets applied to us, and that we receive your righteousness when we come to faith in you. And God, I pray that for any student that's in here that's, that's questioning who you are, questioning your, the reality of who you are and your existence, I pray that you would reveal themselves to you right now, that they would, you would reveal yourself to them right now so they can start a relationship with you through faith in you and through your grace and mercy extended to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey guys, it's a little bit late, so